BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtog, but enough about me. My guest today is the definition of a guitar hero, and he's been one since way back. While he was still in his teens, he faced a choice. Should he join a band with Eric Clapton or fellow Bay Area resident Carlos Santana? He opted for Santana, setting him on the path to rock immortality. He and several other Santana vets would branch off to form a little band you may have heard of called Journey. He's responsible for so much of the multi-platinum band's music over the years, including Wheel in the Sky, Open Arms, Faithfully, Any Way You Want It, and of course, Don't Stop Believin', which recently became only the second tune to ever break one billion streams on Spotify. Now Journey are back with Freedom, their first album of new material in over a decade, We'll talk about the new tracks, classic hits, and what's to come on his own musical journey. I'm so happy to welcome Mr. Neil Sean. I am just absolutely loving this new record. Congratulations. I mean, for me, it's up there with Escape in terms of just energy and song craft. It's so awesome. You know what? I, I'm really, like, proud of this record, you know, how it all came about. There was, like, no pressure to make it. Uh, we had a lot of time on our hands while everybody was down, you know, and uh, just went about it in a really natural way, uh, not a forced way at all. You know, I mean, I was working with Narda Michael Walden the whole time um, as we lived close to each other. So we were able to get together and actually play together while everybody else had to overdub, you know, but um, I've made a lot of records in my life so far and... You know, made a lot of records just starting with drums and guitar. And so there's a lot of life there, you know, especially in today's age of computers and 
Pro Tools and, you know, people working just on a computer. I mean, him and I came from an old school place of playing, you know, lead guitar with drums and laying it down and a lot of soul, like, like uh, Let It Rain. You know, that was just a live jam. Like I walked in the studio one day and he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I go, well, I got this riff, you know, I'm messing around with. And it was kind of funky and it reminded me of Chaka Khan and, you oh, know, yeah. Prince and Hendrix. And, you know, and so he's like, you know, so badass on the drums like that. And so I thought I'd get like a little different strut going. And, um, you know, we just started jamming and, and we left it there. You know, I arranged it as it went down in my head, not knowing where the vocals would go and just kind of jammed through it. And we left it alone for months. And then we came back to it and listened to it. And I went, wow, that's awesome, man. Let's work on this. <laughs> Sounds like it was almost the one that got away. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? There's a bunch, actually. Um, there's 15 on this record, 16 wow. um, for the Japanese release. But we did about 35 songs. And a lot of them are, are, are very good. We just chose the ones we did because we levitated that way. And the vocals lended itself to go that way, you know, after Jonathan got through with it and uh, writing lyrics and stuff. And so he worked on the ones that kind of hit him, uh, you know, the hardest when we sent them to him. Uh, and, you know, this is what we got. Oh, it's so awesome. I know, uh, looking at the credits and hearing the record, it sounds like you're playing a lot more keyboards on this album than normal. What's, uh, what, what, what triggered that? Well, you know what? The pandemic actually triggered it. I'm going to blame it on the pandemic. <laughs> but, you know, I'm with months and months going by, I never imagined that you know, we would be, you know, sitting at home for so long and not working. And so... To do the album, for one, was just a blessing. But besides that, I had to figure out a way to get inspired every day just to, <clears> you know, keep up my craft. And so I started, you know, playing keyboards more and looping, you know, looping into a stereo looper, playing bass with my left hand, you know, on the keyboards, and then overdubbing strings. And, you know, I just sort of got more into voicings, like keyboard voicings. And... um you know, wrote a lot from the keyboards. Uh, a lot of stuff was written on guitar as well, but, you know, it brings you to, for myself, being a guitar player, really, it, I write in a different vein when I sit on keyboards mm. and in, in, in a different melodic vein. And uh, it's sort of because I, I don't play that well, you know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. A lot, a lot of things are more simplified. You know, I orchestrate well. It takes me forever in the studio, you know, where somebody... <laughs> like Jonathan or an uh, accomplished keyboard player could like do these overdubs in a second where I was out there for hours. I'm like, no, Jim, right with our engineer. I'm like, punch me in again. That isn't what I wanted to play. Cause you know, I don't know anything about them. I don't, I don't really read music. I don't look at, at black and white keys. I just go by ear and I'm like, that sounds right. This doesn't, you know? And, um, you know, Jonathan was um, really busy doing all different things. And uh, I felt like when Narda and I worked this stuff up, the stuff that we did together, I then started even playing bass on it. I played bass on it. I played keyboards. I sang on it. We sang Bee Gees. A lot of the Bee Gees ended up on the album and just got reinforced by Jason and John. 
you know, in RNL. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it was pretty much, we were doing everything in there, you know, and, and trying to, um, before we sent it out to, to Jonathan or Arnell or Randy, who had like a basic, you know, I wanted them to hear the vibe of what I was hearing in my head and what we were hearing, uh, cause Nardi and I were co-producing it. And so, you know, didn't want to, you know, end up with my bass on the record, but I ended up playing pretty good where Randy Jackson just took what I played. Like on Rain, I did all that Jack Bruce stuff yeah. that I love, you know? Oh, yeah. And then Randy just took it to another level. You know, he's a way better bass player, but he could get the vibe of what I, what I was going for, you know, by the demo of how I played on it. Oh, what was it like working with Randy again? The first time since 86, raised on radio, right? And, you know, I, I love Randy to death. You know, he's just such a great person, for one, and positive person to be around, as well as Narda. You know, it was, it was really great to have that fresh energy, you know, coming from a, a, a fresh new rhythm section. And, you know, we got this new stout about it. You know, it was like, you know, there was a new dance going on. And, uh, you know, I love Randy. I talk to him every day. He's been very involved in this record, uh, helping me... Uh, get on management, you know, with BMG. Like I have meetings every Monday with BMG and we get on and we talk about strategy, about singles, what we're going to do, how many interviews I'm going to do. I mean, I've been like cramming it, man, for oh. real. Oh, man. I mean, it's just funny. I mean, now that after the last two years, everybody's kind of starting to get back out there. The title Freedom really has a special ring to it these days. What led you to that, uh, that title? You know, the title, goes back a long ways um our our you know former manager original manager herbie herbert um before we finished raised on radio before it was called raised on radio he always came up with these titles for our albums you know and they were one word titles and i love that and this in particular record that steve produced and you know took a hold of he didn't want to name it you know, he fought with Irby about it and he ended up winning and he got, you know, raised on radio. So it sat there for many years. And, um, you know, we, we went through a lot of uh, hell in the last couple of years with the lawsuit, with the X-Band members, all that. When we got through it all, I was like, why don't we just use freedom for everything? We'll use freedom for, you know, the new LLCs that, that John and I, you know, made up and uh, then, you know, album title came and we were throwing around album titles and I go, why not freedom? Just make everything freedom. Everybody, you know, that's what they want right now. They've been locked down. It's what everybody wants in the world anyway. You know, it's like, so it just seemed like a natural uh, choice of an album title and for everything really. I love the video that you guys had for the way we used to be, the animated video for the, the couple in the in lockdown. I thought that was a very, uh, very sweet way to show kind of what we were all going through. Oh, you got to get back to the way we used to be. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, that's funny. You call it the way we used to be. That's what it ended up being. I always called it, You, I got to get back. And so it was implanted in my head that the title was, I got to get back, you know. And, uh, but yeah, that, that was, uh, from Rand, that was Randy's idea actually. Um, and some, 
you know, artists that he knew that did that type of work, um, video work. And so we went with his idea and, you know, that's it. It's, it's something different than we've never done before. Um, uh, certainly better than trying to do a, a storyboard for us, as you can see from our past, you know, separate ways and, and you know. Well, especially during lockdown too, it's got to be tough. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, live videos, it's either, you know, the cartoon thing was I read. A lot of people liked it. Some people didn't like it. They're like, I don't get it for Journey. But I thought it was interesting, a good idea for, you know, being a time that we couldn't all be together and actually do a live video. I mean, you were talking earlier about how Let It Rain kind of came about from a, a group jam that coalesced together in the studio. And then you have stuff like, you know, the, the way we used to be, or something that sounds like it was much more done, you know, individually at home on a keyboard or something. Do you have a, a way that you prefer to, to write? Do you prefer to do it in the room with, with the other guys? Or do you prefer to, to sit down and sort of compose? Or does it depend on, uh, on what you're trying to say? You know, what I like to do, what I found that I like to do is, and what we've done in the past, you know, with some of our bigger records is, you know, when it was Steve and, and John and I way back, we would sit around a piano. I'd sit with acoustic guitar and the three of us would bang it out. Then we'd get together and we'd rehearse as a band uh, before we went into the studio to record and play it as if we were going to walk on stage. So if I'm going to play fills in between the vocals, I'm going to do it live, right? And not go, oh, I'll just do it later, you know, when I get to an overdub stage. Because I hate overdubbing like that. I think it's always better when you're playing as a band to play live, you know. So many people just don't do that anymore. And it doesn't have that that flow or that flair. Um, and it doesn't sound authentic, you know, like it happened in the moment. And so um, I, I, I like the way we went about this record just because of the way the record came about and we didn't have a, a ton of material walking in but uh got to get back to the way we used to be that came from my keyboard playing you know i played the keyboard part and i in the whole song and that was it and i sent it to jonathan and he finished you know the lyrics and sang the rough vocal and that was it it was like and everybody overdubbed on it and uh, it was done that's such a great track. I, I think I remember you saying that, that songs like Lights and Patiently came together really quickly. Do you find that that the best songs kind of come fast, almost fully formed? Yeah, definitely. Most definitely, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, two ways of going about it, you know, and interesting songs that become big um, come about from working on it for a while, like Don't Stop Believing. You know, Lights came... You know, Steve had most of the song put together. I recall being down in, in Greg Raleigh's, uh, you know, downstairs area where we sit around on bean bags with piano and guitar amps and kind of kick stuff around, you know, in his house in Mill Valley. And um, Steve Parrott, uh, Perry played drums as well as bass and a little bit of guitar, but he had a bass on. And he was like playing more of an R&B groove, you know, not the stroll that I put it to after I wrapped the chords around it, like the Hendrix S, you know, Sean chords. <laughs> I'm going to own it too right now, you know, but, um, you know, he was singing it and, you know, what better instrument can you have when you're singing a melody is the root. No, it's a bass. 
you know, because you change one note in the bass and it changes the whole melody of what you're singing. It really doesn't matter what everything else is doing. That's all like, you know, icing on the cake. And so the root note and then the main melody is it. And so I, I stuck, you know, I, I listened to what he did. And I said, what if we started like this? And I did this little rolling, you know, rhythm part that the song starts like. And then I put it into the old stroll kind of feel, you know, uh, rather than a straightforward R&B funk feel. And um, then I wrote the bridge um, and he sang on it and I played a guitar solo over it. And it was that was it. You know, a song like Don't Stop Believing. We were in my uh, studio over in Oakland that I took over from Larry Graham years ago after I played with him. And that was sort of our, that was our clubhouse for writing all our stuff and rehearsing for years, you know, uh, all our material and getting ready to go on tour. Uh, we, Jonathan brought in, you know, uh, the opening chords uh, for the verse uh, for Don't Stop Believing. And he had, you know, the hook uh, and the lyrical content that his dad had told him, you know, like, don't stop believing, son, you'll get there, you know. He was starting to lose hope in the music industry and having a tough time, you know, surviving in it, which can be difficult, man, especially in today's day and age. I mean, it was difficult back then as well. But, you know, he brought that in. He sang, you know, the melody he had. And then we sat there and we just, like, thought about it for a second. It was mainly the three of us uh, before Smith and, and Ross came in on it. but. Uh, it sat there and then I started thinking, you know, we need like a Motown type bass line to follow. And so then between John and I, we came up. Jamerson. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, I came up with the B section. We looked for a B section to go, where's it got to go from here? And I went strange, you know. And it was like, yeah, they go, I like that. And so we did that. Then we went back to a verse, right? We're thinking, well, do we need to go to a chorus? Because by now everybody's looking at their watch, which is really tedious. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I, they're like, how many minutes has it been since we haven't gotten to the chorus, you know? And I said, who gives a fuck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so... You know, I started playing the little train guitar thing, which sounds like, you know, I used to listen to symphonies and I played yeah. clarinet and oboe in high school. And Dad's a big band arranger. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I just heard a thing, like a symphony type part. And I started playing that. And they go, wow, I really like that. So instead of going to a verse right away, in the second verse, that little mini guitar solo, whatever you want to call it, that happened and that actually. Uh, brought the lyrics that came next, but, you know, she took the midnight train going anywhere because they thought it sounded like a train. So those are the good things that happen when you work together, when you have chemistry with guys, you know, and you bounce off each other, the lyrical content, everything kind of flows, you know, uh, while you're in the room together. And then, you know, it we went back to another B section, Strangers Waiting, and then it came time for a little mini guitar solo. And so I go, what am I going to play, man? It's so short. Um, and I'm thinking, oh, we haven't even hit the chorus yet. It's the first song we've ever done, I think, that didn't hit the chorus until the end of the song, right? And so 
I go, I'm going to play. I think I'm going to play the course. And I remember Harry looking at me and going, you're really going to fucking do that? You're going to play that course? <laughs> I haven't even sung it yet. You know, and he was kind of pissed about it. And I went, well, yeah, why wouldn't I? It's a setup, man. Why should yeah. I not implant it in everybody's head before you sing it? And he was like, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, we did it and the rest was history, you know. And I recall when uh, we finished it in the studio and we were listening down to very close to final mixes. And I looked at the guys and I go, I don't know, there's something about this song. I think it's going to be massively huge, you know? And when they released it, I believe it only it went to like number eight. It was always a very big song, you know, live for us, but many of our songs were. Like Lights Now is like an epic anthem, like Don't Stop Believing, if not bigger live. You know, the whole place lights up. They all sing it louder than I can hear the band. And so, wow. you know, just things kind of take on their own organic state of, you know, how people are going to perceive them and accept them. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
What is your process of of constructing a solo? Is it something that's more sort of that you prefer to do in the moment when, as you said, like with, with the band? Or is it something that you really sit down and, and um, construct to play off potentially the lyrics? I know the, that your solo inspired the lyrics for Don't Stop Believing, but is it something that, um, yeah, I just, I'm curious about how much of it is pre-planned versus how much of it is just as a different take to take and in the moment. You know what? I'm always, I have to honestly say, there's very few solos that I ever planned out uh, and and worked on. They just kind of flew wow. out in, in the moment. And I found that the more I thought about it, the worse they got. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I had to work on something. You know, we'd always go back to the first take. Um, whatever producer we were using, whether it was Roy Thomas Baker or whomever, you know, I mean, it was always like the first take and second take at the most and the third sucked and the fourth sucked worse. <laughs> and so, you know, I just like, I, I would come in and just kind of be able, ready to accept as long as it had the soul and the feeling of the song. A main thing for me, especially in Journey, is to convey the melody, the vocal melody after, mm. you know, they get done singing, you know, because Journey songs are all about melody. You know, it's not about a lot of abstract stuff, even though I love that stuff too. It's not the band, you know? So I try to to, to play what is needed in the song, not what I want to play, you know? I mean, we had fights about it, you know, years ago. With a song like Who's Crying Now, you know, it's another, when John first came into the band, he brought that song in along with open arms. And I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? You know, I, I, I don't get it, man. You know, and, and they become like the biggest hits, you know, yeah. but, but I struggled in the studio playing the solo uh, on um, who's crying now, because I was trying to do more with it. You know, I was trying to make it more musical uh, because I just thought that the song was so simple. And it was like a, a, a pop song, a pretty pop song, but yeah, I was trying to put a little bit like, you know, just musical expression in it and trying to play more like a horn player rather than a simple guitar part. And I remember everybody was in the studio when I was out there and it just was not coming out, you know, and if it doesn't come out of me in the first couple of takes, everybody gets really frustrated. And so they did. And they were like, just play the simplest fucking thing you can think of, you know? And I was out of, I was kind of like being a smart ass, I believe. And, you know, kind of numb from the neck up back in those days. And, you know, I don't know how many drinks or whatever we had, you know, and I, and I went, okay, I'll fix them. You know, I'm going to just play this stupid little melody. And I thought it was going to be like, you know, like they'd go, come on, man. What are you doing? You know? Cause they kind of got under my skin. Then they go, that was perfect. <laughs> and I go, oh, I'm like, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> and then it turns out to be like, you know, one of the classic solos that everybody sings every night. I have, I don't have a clue sometimes about, you know, what people are really going to like and what they're not going to like. For me, I like it all, but you know, what people, uh, uh, what catches on is uh, the simplicity, definitely, you know, you know, uh, knowing Les Paul and becoming pretty good friends with him for, for years, 
he always, when we talked, he always talked about melody. And, you know, the first time I went to play with him at the Iridium in New York City, I was in the studio uh, with the guys and we were recording our first album with Steve Ajeri singing uh, Rival. And, and uh, uh, we we're recording a whole album in New York. So we went, you know, our producer at the time, Kevin Shirley, said, let's go down and see Les Paul. And I said, great. So we went. So I'm, I'm sitting in the audience and I'm not going to name any names, but two very good guitarists got up, you know, and I didn't know he was going to call me up later, but they were playing like every note in the fretboard, you know, and not playing too much melody. And Les was the funniest guy. I mean, he was like, you know, it was like the Jackie Gleason, Les Paul <laughs> hour with him and Lou Paulo. He was quick, man. Really, really quick and really, really, you know, like zappy, you know, people. And uh, funny, you know, I mean, he's been known to unplug people on stage if they played too many notes. <laughs> you know, he just like, they'd be like looking up at the ceiling and playing and they just like take the cord out. <laughs> and so he goes, you know, all these guys, these two guys are playing all these notes and he looks over at them after they get done. He goes, all right, you're done? And he goes, <laughs> and he goes uh, God, that would never end. Then he goes... Uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to be humming that one all night long. <laughs> and I was like, ouch, man, it's like an igloo in here. you know. And so uh, then he called me up out of the blue, you know, and I was like, oh, man, I don't want to be put on the spot like right. this. And so I tried to be really respectful, you know, and just, you know, um, I just goofed around a bit and, and, you know, played some bluesy, jazzy licks. And I guess he really liked it. He, you know, I played one of his guitars. They were on stage and he gave it to me afterwards and signed it. He was the coolest guy and we became friends after that. But he always talked about melody, you know, how important melody is. And, you know, he could do it all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What an innovator. I, I just was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and I saw some. It was like a, a, a cylinder brick with like a broom handle and some jerry-rigged microphone that went into, you know, his early double tracking machines. It was insane. He told me this story himself, and he stole the railroad track <laughs> from the railroad track. That's where he got the wood, right? <laughs> he stuck it in the back of his pickup, and he took it home, and he carved it out, and he put the strings on it. And then he, he's trying to think in his mind, how am I going to make this guitar electric? And the only thing that his imagination he came up with was taking, you know, off an old phonograph. Before there was actually speakers in it, it was like the little needle that you drop and has a built-in speaker, a sound hole on the actual needle. Like the old Victrola. That in the wood. Oh, my God. So it would resonate, you know. And then, you know, they kind of came up with the Dobros and everything after that up a resonating top of the guitar. But, um, yeah, that's where it all came from. Oh, man. What an incredible genius. I mean, you know. We wouldn't have all these Beatles records. Yeah. Nothing without him coming up with all these, you know, insane, I mean, total madness how he even came up with it. I mean, just a total genius. Oh, but yeah, those records, especially, the, I, I always love the ones he did with Mary Ford back in the late 40s, early 50s. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, for anyone listening who hasn't, uh, explored those yet. I envy you because they will blow your mind. They're so st so fresh, so intricate. They're so cool. I think he's, he's, he's the greatest. Uh, Definitely. 
last time we spoke, actually, we were talking about you were um, you were uh, letting go of some guitars, some incredible guitars. Uh, 1950 Broadcaster, a No-Caster, uh, a 59 Gold Top Les Paul, if I recall. I, I just, I love the mythology around guitars. I love guitars that have backstories that have been passed from player to player. Maybe it's my King Arthur Excalibur fantasies in there. I just love that that these guitars take on a life of their own. You've got the stories of Jeff Beck giving Jimmy Page his Stairway to Heaven Telecaster or um, Clapton, or, uh, Clapton giving the Lucy Les Paul to uh, to George Harrison. I was just wondering, do you have any guitars that kind of come from a long uh, historical lineage? You know, I've got I've got a few uh, vintage guitars. You know, I don't have a lot anymore, man, because yeah. they were not my go-to guitars. To tell you the truth, I I collected uh, during the pandemic. You know, because I'd never done it before. Joe Bonamassa was giving me a lot of help, you know, because he was a pro at it, obviously. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was like, hey, what do you think it is? Is this, you know, are they asking too much for it? What, what do you think I should offer for it? And I collected, you know, uh, well over, I don't know, about 150 guitars. And they were all vintage. They were stacked up in our house, you know, crawling over guitars to get through <laughs> to anywhere. And... Um, I just kind of take it on. I, I took it on as a hobby, and learned how to work on them. And you know, I I never had owned them, and so I wanted to own them, and I wanted to work on them and find out if I really loved them or not. Mm-hmm. And so, the Telecasters and the Broadcaster you were talking about, the Blackguards, were completely insanely mint, mint condition, like brand new. You know. Uh, and I paid a small fortune for them, really. Um, but the problem with them was that they were only worth that much money if you don't mess with them. And I wanted to mess with them. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. my stuff that I play, I mess with. You know, I I switch p- pickups out. I switch pots out. I put different frets. I you know I make it comfortable for myself. And the frets that that the guitars had come with were so tiny. I couldn't hmm. get, you know, I just couldn't get under them, you know? Uh, and, and then I could never set them up to feel comfortable. And then the screws in the back by the bridge were sticking out and they were very uncomfortable. And I wanted to put smaller ones, but then I go, if I change it, it's going to take the value away from the guitar. So I had, you know, so many great uh, relic Tellies and strats that I got from Fender, they're just like off the hook right now with the product that they make, uh, you know, relicking old guitars and not only to look old, but they sound old and they play old, but with a new modern edge to it, you know, they'll have a little bit bigger frets, a little more comfortable. Uh, the neck is actually worn off on the, the older Tellies I'm talking about, the black arts. I mean, all the lacquer was still on and I don't really like the lacquer. Mm. I wanted to sand it down and I was like, no, I can't do that. And so, you know, it was a classic case of after having them and working on them and finding if I really was attached to them, that I wasn't attached to them, you know, unless I just wanted to have a museum someday. And then I went, I don't see that happening because it's kind of, I look at it kind of like it would be like a a restaurant, you know, something you have to run yeah. 
yourself all the time. And you can't really, you know, trust any one person to do it beside yourself. And so I just, I'm never going to have the time to do that. So I just thought I'll put it in the hands of somebody that can really appreciate it. And uh, I got rid of a lot of stuff. And I still have like about, I don't know, 750, something like that, guitars. What's your go-to now? What did you play? What was your rig uh, for for Freedom? Uh, You know what? On Freedom, I, I brought... I brought about 35 guitars into the studio. You know, I'd bring like about two a day for, you know, months. Then they pile up. Pretty soon they were piled up. You know, Narda was like, dude, I think you need to like make a little room here. But, you know, I had a little bit of everything. You know, I had um, a gold top of uh, one of my Les Pauls, an NS model that they only made, you know, for a year. Uh, And they made 200 of them. And uh, I used that on some tracks. Uh, they wanted a little bit thicker sound. Um, then I had um, uh, a Relic a Fender Black Tele, 63 Tele, that I played a lot. And people don't affiliate me with a Tele because they never see me mm-hmm. with a Tele. But that was, uh, uh, you got the best of me. That is my Tele. You know, that's a Tele. It's a thick sounding telly, but it's got such attitude. You know, telecasters just have that gnarly thing that they do. And, you know, if you play them through a fuzz face or something like that, like, you know, I found out that even a Purple Haze that Hendrix did was on a telly and it wasn't a strap. And so that's what tellies sound like through a fuzz face, you know, and uh, got a big, thick sound. And, What's cool about them is you, you you wind the volume back and it gets brighter and more staccato in your face. So when you're playing solos, when I really wanted the notes to stick out and be more staccato, I just roll the volume back. And when I wanted it to get thick on some of the more singing notes, you pull the volume up. It's kind of like what Jimmy Page did on the first Led Zeppelin album, you know? Big, thick telly sounds on that album, all throughout the album. And it's through, you know, overdrive pedals, I don't know if you use a fuzz face or a uh, tone bender or whatever you use, but uh, that that those guitars are something else. And so I use a 63. I had, uh, I used um, a Relic 63 Strat from Fender uh, with some bigger frets on it that had some, you know, custom pickups in it. There were no hum. They weren't like the new no hums that they, they're putting in. And I don't even know what they are. They could be DiMarzio's, whatever the pickups are. The guitar sounded great, though, so I just used it. Um, uh, I used um, a Taylor for acoustic guitar, a little bit acoustic that I did play on the record. And, you know, pretty much I that was it. You know, I didn't, I ended up honing into those, about those three guitars, you know, throughout the whole record. And I don't recall using much more than that. Speaking of uh, Hendrix, I loved uh, your performance at the uh, NBA Finals. I'm a Boston boy myself, so we might have some some differences there. But uh, that was an incredible performance. You know, I was obviously I was at the first game. That was an honor for me. You know, it's uh, it's so great that you know now that I've been managing myself. You know. I don't have anybody diverting the calls is what I found out. Like, you know, when I first played 
when I got asked by the Raiders to do it in Vegas, you know, uh, they called me and finally got a hold of me. And I said, dude, you are like the hardest guy to get a hold of. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, we've been trying to get a hold of you for like 20 years. And I said, who are you talking to? And they said, management. And, and I said, what did they tell you? And they said, they said you weren't interested. And I was like, nice. Oh, nice. <laughs> and so now, you know, people are calling me directly and I'm getting asked to do it all the time. And uh, it's a, quite, it was quite an honor. Uh, it was a little freaky for me. You know, it wasn't like being on a big giant football field, you know, in the stadium in Vegas. That was really comfortable. It's the first time I'd been in, you know, we played at Chase Center uh, in San Francisco on this last tour, but I was on a stage. You know, this time I'm down in the middle of the court. And while I'm getting ready to do it, I'm barely hearing the announcer because the sound system, they have the PA uh, dress system, whatever they have in there, is not like what they have in Vegas, you know. And so, uh, and and I got all players from both teams, right, on each side of me. And they're all falling down in front of me. The balls are flying by. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to get oh taken out of here in a second, man. It was interesting. These guys look nine feet tall when you're standing down there with them, man. For real. I was just like, wow, this is insane. And so... um, I wasn't quite hearing enough of myself in the house. I think they were a little gun shy, you know, with, with the, the guitar in the mix because I believe it's the first time they've ever allowed, you know, a guitar player to do that um, on the first playoff on, you know, televised across the world. And so um, I, I was mostly hearing myself on the ground with the two Marshall cabinets I had, and it's a wooden floor. Everything was bouncing around. And so, you know, I do I think I could have done better? Yeah, but, you know, there's going to be another time, you know. And uh, it was a great experience. I'm just, you know, thrilled that they, they even asked me. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're going back out on the road. You're playing some dates in Vegas with an orchestra. I mean, that's got to be, that's, I cannot wait to hear uh, clips from that. That seems amazing. That's got to be such a great way to to augment these songs. It seemed really, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, with your solo for Don't Stop Believing, I can totally hear how the orchestra could fit into a lot of these tracks. Yeah, we've done it a couple times now. Um, we did it at the Hollywood Bowl years ago. Um, we did it with a full, like, 100, over 100-piece 100 orchestra. And we did a long show, close to three hours. And uh, we rearranged all this, the songs to accommodate orchestra and to make it a bit different than a record. And we did like, you know, it, it was interesting is the hits that you would naturally hear an orchestra on, whether it's, you know, like uh, ballads like Faithfully or, or Open Arms or whatever, sounded, you know, more like not that different from what we did live. But the rock songs that we did took on a whole different mm. feeling you know um like city of hope we did we're going to be playing that off the first album we did with arnell right uh or it was the second album i can't remember um whether it was eclipse or a right um the first album with him revelation um and you know there was french horns there was all this stuff going on that really you know embellished the tunes and so it's going to be interesting to play all that stuff again uh and the arrangements they're going to have to learn them i can't remember what we did it was such a long time ago but we'll we'll pick it up fast oh man i, I know you got a uh, another big milestone on the horizon i hope you don't mind me mentioning it uh 50 years with journey coming up uh i understand you got some uh some big plans possibly in the works i was wondering if there's uh anything you can share about that um, there's some I'm not supposed to talk about. I've already been like they smacked my hands. Like to talk about that, and I'm like, oh, understood. Okay, but, um, but no, there are big plans, and uh, the immediate plans just uh, for the fans out there that you know I I feel really bad about you know the 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 last four gigs that we had that we had to postpone uh, due to COVID and one of us getting sick, and it wasn't me. <laughs> but I'm not going to say anything more than that. But um, everybody assumed it was me because classic rock, you know, the mag, they came out with a little blurp about it. And they used a picture of me. So <laughs> oh, it must have been Neil. And I went, no, it wasn't me. Uh, but um, we're going to make up those dates. Uh, what the talk is right now, those will be the first dates that we play 
of the new year. And we're going to go out early again, like we did, you know, this this year. And uh, we're doing the first 40 shows, at plus the makeups with Toto again, which, you know, was a call of mine. I, you know, I've known Lukather, Steve Lukather forever. And, you know, amazing guitar player, amazing friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other and respected each other for years. And I just thought, you know, I saw a poster years ago uh, from A Day on the Green, and it was um, Bill Graham's A Day on the Green, and it was Journeys, Santana, and Toto. And I went, what a great bill. That, that you know, I see that happening. And possibly, you know, we're going to do these 40 days with Toto. Then the deal I made with Lukather Managing was like I said, look, we're, we can probably sell out these places by ourselves. And AEG didn't know at the time because we hadn't worked with them yet. But I had a good clue that, you know, while we were being stuck in sheds for the last two decades and, you know, only accountable for 5,000 seats because there's only 5,000 seats. I used to pay guys in the parking lot, you know, that were brothers of mine. And, and I'd say, how many cars were here tonight? And they say like, 23, 24,000, you know? And I said, oh, really? And then I go to work on, how many do we have here tonight? And you go, oh, well, you didn't do as good as you did last year. You're probably about 18,000. And so when you're on stage and you're playing these sheds, you can't tell how many people are there. You have to go and pay the guys some money in the parking lot and ask them. <laughs> Just a little clue for other bands. So I had a good clue of how strong we were, you know, really. Um, being told one thing to keep you kind of down here, you know, and don't get, let them get outside of the box, you know, but, you know, I had managed to do a few gigs. One was the Indianapolis uh, 500 to 100th anniversary. Uh, actually, my wife and I put together with friends of ours that, that run that. And um, at the time, our management wasn't going to allow us to play. They didn't want us to play. We went uh, just to witness it in, you know, before we played another time and hung out. And they were like, how come you don't want to play? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about it. I said, I'd love to play. Well, I said, so let me call somebody and I put them on the phone while I was sitting there with the main guys. And so this is all why, you know, I'm doing it myself now, you know, is that because I want to hear what's really going on yeah. from the get-go before it goes from this person to that person, this person, that person, and then you hear whatever you hear in the end, which is total bullshit. It's a game of telephone. Yeah. You know, so I just, you know, um, I'm, I'm enjoying knowing what's really going on, uh, but we're going to go. I told Lukather, I said, look, and we did sell out. We started selling out immediately, and... You know, as, as when we got past, I think, the first week, it was totally sold out, the whole tour. And so uh, it'll happen again. Uh, it's a great package. Our fans love the package with Toto. And, you know, I go by every night. You know, I'd, I'd hire like um, uh, three pro photographers to come with us, you know, which I thought was really important in the beginning of our tour with AEG to show the strength of the band. And one of the guys in particular, Iron Mike, you know, he's well known in the rock industry. And he he's known for, he's like, you know, the goat, man. He goes way up in the Coliseum or wherever you are and gets these long shots of the audience. It just shows a packed audience, you know? 
it shows the magnitude and the size of our crowd, you know? And so I started posting this every night with pictures of the band, thanking everybody from the city. It was like doing this by myself, you know, and taking it upon myself. It's like my responsibility as manager to do this for the band, to elevate us. And sure enough, it just started snowballing. snowballing. So now uh, AG obviously loved uh, how well it did, as well as CAA and our agent there. Uh, Jeff Rasco, and so now we're good, we're going to continue. I said, let's just continue. You know, there's no reason not to. So we're going to play the secondary markets in the first 40 shows, make up the dates that we had to cancel. Uh, then we're going to play some of the main markets that we did miss this year, uh, next year, in the first 40 dates. Then we're planning on going overseas with Toto, which is was the deal I made with Lukather because they have a big following over there. And I believe we do too, but we just don't know it yet because nobody wanted us to be big over there because <laughs> there's different guys that, that, you know, do the shows, you know, and they're independent promoters. And so we weren't allowed to do that 20 years ago. And so now we are, but, you know, Lukather got back and I said, that's the deal. I said, you know, we'll, we'll take you guys on this and it'll elevate you and then we'll go with you and it'll elevate us as well in Europe and in South America. And so we're going to go explore all those territories with them. And he's already gotten back to me and said, hey, man, some of my promoters, and he manages Toto too. And he said, some of my promoters told me we can go into stadiums with just the two of us. And so I said, I thought so. So we're heading there. I think it's going to be really, really interesting. My, I'm so excited uh, to get back and, and play outside of the U.S. as well. Because I know we have so many, like, billions of fans, yeah. basically. Not millions, billions, you know, all over the world. And um, and then I'm talking to Carlos Santana. You know, him and I are, like, really, you know, as tight as ever. And we're talking about working together again. And so, you know, I'm warming them up to the idea of if we, uh, if I start out with, Toto and we play the markets that they're strong in. I know how strong Santana is across the world because I played in a band when I was just a kid. <laughs> and it remains like that for him, you know? God bless him, you know? And God bless the fans. I mean, it's so awesome. I, that experience for me was just like nothing ever bored. I, I will never forget that, you know? Um, but it's, there's no reason not to do it at this time because it is my 50th anniversary. and Really, that's where Journey came from, you know? Uh, and so to have that story with us, you know, and playing with Carlos and some of these dates, and I, th I see us playing some stadiums, coming back to the U.S. and playing some stadiums with Santana as well, and possibly Toto, you know? Carlos likes Earth, Wind, and Fire, though, too, and they're awesome, so we'll see what happens. Maybe all four of us. Or, or three of us. And then there's plans for 24 too, but that's the one I've been smacked down about. They don't want me talking about it. <laughs> but Understood. it is a stadium tour. So we're like going like this, you know. At this point, Seriously? my career to watch it escalate to even a higher level than it's ever been. It's just, it's very gratifying to me. It's, the word is gratitude, you know. <laughs> And, and, um, 
you know, I love the fans so much. They're like so supportive. I always knew they were there for us much more than it appeared though, you know, and now I'm seeing for real um, what it's all about. And so it's, it's um, you know, we're, we're moving up really, really quick. But the other thing that I cleaned up that my wife and actually and I cleaned up um, that we investigated for about six years is our merchandise, you know. We had been lied to for many, many years that, you know, our merchandise was trademarked. And we found out it was never trademarked. And oh, so wow. our merchandise is massive across the world. And we're like receiving chump change, you know. <laughs> but people are making billions, oh, yeah, billions sure. of dollars. I mean, people do not realize in bands how big merch is because most management, they don't want them to know how big it is. That's way bigger than playing, you know, if you have it put together right. So now we got all that put together. I've been doing cleanup for the last two years. I took everything off the shelves. The only thing that's left out there in retail is all bootleg stuff. Uh, and they're all phony deals that w- that it was under. And they were saying they were licensed deals. And, you know, I was basically on the phone with and on Zoom with, with CEOs of these bigger stores saying, you know what, man, you have a real problem here. Um, wow. Well, we had, they said we had contracts. And I go, not real ones. No, no real <laughs> contracts here. And I said, and people basically that you had contracts with are fired now. And so you've been selling our stuff really illegally for two years. And so, you know, we're going to have to settle up here and uh, move on. And, you know, and so that's what's happening right now. And taking on a lot of stuff, man, steering the bull in the right areas. But, man, you know, at this point, I'm just not effing around anymore. You know, it's like, yeah. why, why if, if it's really doing that well? Why should we not be the ones that that are, you know, receiving the benefits of it? You know, not everybody else that's ripping you off. Yeah. And so that's where it's at. That's where I'm at. I'm into cleaning the whole thing up, but not losing the music. The music is the main thing, you know. But the rest of it is not that hard, man. Honestly, you know, it, it now that everything is removed. It, it takes yeah. a lot of effort to stay on top of it. You know, I could use a, a day-to-day guy to come in and do a list of stuff for me that I don't really feel like doing now that I've done it. As long as I can find somebody that can follow the list and do what I ask them. <laughs> That's another chore in itself, finding the right person. You know, yeah. someone finding the right person that has the niche of what you're talking about that gets it immediately so they're almost reading your mind and you don't have to take them you don't have to put the training wheels on for six months or two years and they still don't get it no you need to find the right person and so until until i do i'm just gonna keep on doing what i'm doing you know i saw uh on your instagram i think it was in texas a view from the stage it must have been during the lights because i feel like there everybody had the lights up in the air i mean just more scenes like that more scenes like that that's what we're that's what i i, I hope to see more of for you in the next couple of years good lord oh uh, you know what you're going to see that i think all day long in every city yeah. that was that was like one of the best shows that we had definitely done in many, many years. Um, And I didn't know what to expect going in because I knew nothing about the event. 
you know, all I knew is is that it was uh, it was uh, was not an AEG event. It was like a private promoter, and it was a rodeo. And I'm thinking to myself, we're playing a rodeo. And I said, well, who else played these rodeos? And they go, well, Beyonce has done it, Jay Z. They've done it like, you know, multiple times, and Santana's done it, and everybody's done it. I go, well, it must be a cool experience then, you know. But I had no clue going in, like how big it was. And this audience, I mean, all 72,000, it was sold out. And they were diehard Journey fans, okay? They weren't there, you know, they buy tickets for like the whole rodeo and they have lots of different artists. But this particular night sold like really quick. I talked to the promoter and they were just in from second one. And I started off with Star Spangled Banner. And I'll tell you what, that place came on freaking glued, like I'd never heard before. And they stayed that way through our whole show. And then, you know, we had like a new merch company, Future Shirts, that we're working with. They didn't know what to expect. They ran out of merch, you know? And I'm like, how can you run out of merch? You know, never again. No, it's never happened again. Now, you know, honest to God, since I cleaned up the merch, we're we're like doing like numbers like nobody we never did in the 80s uh in our height we're like we're like doing numbers like merch numbers it lets me know that i'm on the right path and you know the man upstairs he's on my <laughs> side he's he's leading me the right way well you got the music man oh good lord i I, I could talk to you all day. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I just, I, I am such a huge fan. I just want to thank you uh, for your time today, but most importantly, thank you for your music. It has meant the world to me and my loved ones over the years. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor to speak to you. It was great to talk to you again and, and come down to the gig in Vegas. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio, a production of iHeartRadio. For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.